Welcome to Amped Up. This is your host, Ryan Knight, and our guest today is Rebecca Parsons. Rebecca is an organizer, and she is the progressive challenger uh, for Congress in Washington's 6th District. Uh, Rebecca, welcome to Amped Up. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, since this is your first time on the show, why don't you give a, just a brief introduction and uh, kind of let our listeners know uh, who you are and, and why you're running for Congress? Yeah, I'm running in the 6th District in Washington State, which is Tacoma in the northwestern tip of the state, because our district has been safely blue for 55 years, yet we have the 11th most conservative Democrat in the House representing us, and somebody who calls himself a leader in getting money out of politics, yet he's taken over $3 million from corporate PACs, and I really just can't stand hypocrisy in politics. It, uh, it's just something I, I really can't stand. And so I decided to run because we need somebody in office who is following through with what they say and actually doing it and helping our district. We really need housing, jobs, health care, and free education for everybody in this district. And uh, that's why I'm running because there's no reason for us to have some, somebody so conservative. And then we also just really need policies that will address the opioid epidemic, lack of good affordable housing, and lack of good jobs. Yeah, you know, one, a lot of my listeners know, but I only have uh, candidates on the podcast who are, uh, who support Medicare for all. That's my first criteria. And then my second criteria is that uh, candidates don't take any corporate PAC money, uh, which you don't. Uh, but kind of mm -hmm. describe to our listeners, like, why that's so important. Because I think that at the heart of, of all of the corruption that we see in our political system, it's money. And it's big money who has bought off both major political parties. And so, you know, we have all these systemic problems, like you said, from healthcare to housing to criminal justice reform, but nothing gets done because in Washington, when nothing gets done, that means these giant corporations make more money. They literally make money off of our broken system, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really mind boggling when the, the, disparity, like the huge gulf between the political discourse and what the you know establishment media and corporate politicians say is possible and what people actually want. You know, the majority of the public wants Medicare for all and the majority of Democratic voters want the Green New Deal. And when I go out before the pandemic, when I was out canvassing and still phone banking and talking with people, people of all ideological persuasions don't like corporate money in politics. And you're right, that's the ultimate cause. Mm. Because just looking at you know, and I don't take any corporate PAC or lobbyist money because it does buy people off. And it's just mind boggling to me that corporate politicians get so offended when that's suggested. Right. For example, because it's literally <laughs> the truth. Yeah, it is. Like, how could you possibly take money from somewhere and not be influenced by it? Like my opponent, Derek Kilmer, he's chair of the New Democrat Coalition, which for any listeners who aren't familiar, it's the largest Democratic caucus in the House. They're conservative. Um, they they actively thwart progressive policies from happening. They put forward these policy proposals that are anti-Medicare for all. So as the chair of that caucus, he has a lot of power, even though he kind of flies under the radar in the national news. And he was at a town hall and somebody from my, a friend of mine from my local DSA chapter, and this was, I don't know, probably almost a year ago, you know, Kilmore was up there telling his usual corporate talking points, which are lies about Medicare for all and how it would hurt rural hospitals. That's absolutely not true. It would help them. And um, this DSA member called out the amount of money that Kilmer has taken from the healthcare and insurance industries. And Kilmer's response was, I resent the implication. It's like, 
what implication, like you're a walking, talking implication of corporate, legal corporate corruption in politics. Like he takes money from the industries and lobbyists that are actively trying to stop Medicare for all from happening. And lo and behold, he opposes it. That's not a coincidence. And he also, he takes a lot of money from lobbyists. Uh, his former chief of staff went on to become a lobbyist who, uh, I believe for Uber, and he holds luncheons training other chiefs of staff how to like schmooze lobbyists. I mean, it's just this endless cycle. And during this pandemic, Derek Gilmer co-sponsored a standalone bill to bail out lobbyists. Mm. Why do you think he did that? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. It's money. Um, you answer to the people you take money from. And so I don't take any corporate PAC or lobbyist money. And then your second criteria, Medicare for all, I mean, that would be, I support it. And it would be so important for my district because in my district, we have the top two counties in Washington state for opioid related deaths. Yet one of those counties doesn't have a single treatment facility that takes Medicaid. Mm. So there are people who are literally dying because they want a knee drug treatment, drug and alcohol treatment, and they can't get it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I mean, we're the richest nation on earth, yet we don't have universal health care, universal child care, or universal public college. And, and, and it's because we're the greediest nation on earth. Right. And so when people say that our democracy is dying because of Trump, you know, I push back on that and I say, no, Trump is just a symptom. Our democracy is dying because of greed. And this greed has corrupted our political system. It's corrupted our economy. It's corrupted our healthcare system. And, and you really start to see when you kind of look under the hood of America, if America was a car and you're looking under the hood, what's really broken is that is that big money now controls the entire game. And, and we don't have a government that's for the people. You know, so when people say to me like, oh, we need to save our democracy. I'm like, wait, who are you saving this democracy for? Are you saving it for the billionaire class? Are you saving it for the plutocrats? Are you saving it for the giant corporations? Because those yeah. are the only people this democracy is working for. And what a, a democracy means that people have representation. But right now, no one in America has representation because, like you said, even independents, even half of Republicans support Medicare for all. But mm -hmm. neither major political party does because they're both bought and paid for by the giant insurance corporations. So, you know, we have a that to me is at the heart of this problem. Yeah, Trump is a terrible president, but we've had these systemic problems long before Trump and neither party has tried to solve them. They just blame each other. And here's a little spoiler alert. Both major political parties share the same donors, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> until we get yep. these corporate-backed politicians out of Congress and replace them with progressives like yourself, nothing is really going to change. Um, I want to shift the conversation to kind of, you know, what's plaguing our nation right now. And, and, and that is, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd and, um, you know, the, the systemic uh, epidemic of police brutality and police violence that's kind of gripping the nation. You know, uh, for the 11th straight day, the American people are out in the streets protesting and crying out for justice. They're crying out for justice for George Floyd. They're crying out for justice for every black person before him who has been murdered by the police. They're crying out for racial justice and, and they're crying out for economic justice. And what is our government's response to the people crying out for justice? Our government's response has been injustice and inaction. The, the police are deploying tear gas and firing rubber bullets at people. 
Uh, Trump is threatening martial law. And the Democratic leadership, Nancy, uh, Speaker Pelosi and, and Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, their response is writing a sternly worded letter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Rebecca, why aren't our lawmakers getting together and passing emergency police reform or holding congressional hearings on police brutality? Why do Democratic leaders like Pelosi and Schumer think that a letter can stop Trump's push for a fascist police state? They've just shown themselves. I don't know if they even believe that it would. They just, at some point, you have to wonder when they continue to do things that are so ineffective and that keep not working and they keep caving to the Republicans, are they really being outplayed and outmaneuvered? You know, are they really, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, a smart woman? Like, I mean, it's just some they are working with the Republican Party. They are enablers of the Republican Party. Just like my opponent, my Democratic opponent, Derek Kilmer, he votes with Donald Trump. You know, he says the right stuff, but then he votes to fund, you know, his border wall, fund ICE, fund his military budget, on and on like that, extend the Patriot Act, warrantless surveillance of Americans' digital um, browsing habits. I mean, on and on like that. And they, I think it's like you said, they share donors, so they share a worldview. And yes, Democrats are better than Trump and better than the Republicans. At least, you know, most Democrats are on the so some of the social issues we would like, but they have a lot of the same worldview in common because they share the donors. And honestly, they share a lot in common. You know, they're very wealthy people. Most of them are wealthy, white, straight people who take money from the same donors. Like they, they just share a lot of the same beliefs. And so I think that's part of it. And our, our political system has just become so fossilized. I mean, you can't really expect people who have created the system we have now and spent decades upholding it to suddenly be willing to change it because it's benefited them so much. Yeah, that's right. You know, I one of my political awakenings uh, in the past four years is, uh, you know, standing halfway between fascism and justice is complicity. And that's what we're kind of seeing these more centrist Democrats do right now. There's literally standing halfway. They can't decide, you know, they, they're not fascist like the Republican Party, but they're not unequivocally fighting for justice as the left and progressives are. So they're complicit. And, and herein lies the problem, you know, with the corporate wing of the Democratic Party. Th their resistance to Trump is superficial, right? It's lip service, it's letters and, to and torn speeches. And then they turn around and vote for Trump's military budget. And they just voted a week ago to give him more police power. So while Trump and the GOP are fighting for their fascist agenda, which fires up their, ba their base and their voters, the Democratic Party is passively enabling them, embracing a more corporatist agenda and rejecting the real change that we need to heal our nation. And that deflates our base. So in one end, you've got the Republicans just fighting as hard as they can for their agenda. And then you've got the Democrats who won't fight for the agenda that actually the people want. It's like they're suppressing their own voters. How, how do we break this cycle? I think we need to get more candidates in who will stand up to the Democratic leadership and candidates who, once they're in, they're accountable to movements outside uh, of Congress and outside of government. And... So, for example, I've been endorsed by DSA. I'm accountable to National DSA and also my local DSA chapter. Um, I mean, pe these people are my friends. Um, I 
will be accountable. And I think that should be the mm. case. And when we get, we need to stop this kind of constant cycle where every election cycle, there are these progressives who um, we really, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be the ones they're going to get in, they're going to change things. And then when they start to get, you know, drift and get taken in by the establishment, we get disappointed. And then we try the same thing over again. We need to start mm. actually holding people accountable once they're in. Um, and I think also what we need to do is have a lot more discipline and willingness to stand up to leadership, no matter what they say, uh, once in Congress and have, you know, it could be a small caucus, a small group of people, even if it's only five to 10, but if they start really being willing to vote against things that are bad for their constituents, even if the democratic leadership wants it, then they would start to wield real power. But if it just continues to be empty words and then folding and doing what the Democrat, the leadership wants, uh, that's not going to work. Yeah, that's well said. You know, I also think it's, it's, you know, once they get there, the lobbyists start knocking on their door. You know, again, that's how broken this government is. So I think it's, you know, right now we have a few very strong progressives, you know, I think as, as activists and, and as voters and as citizens who are listening to the podcast, you know, it's, it's about strength in numbers, right? The more progressives we can elect, the stronger they'll be in Congress because they can stand up to the establishment, right? If we can get, you know, 20 Rebecca Parsons elected this cycle, including yourself, mm -hmm. we'll have more strength in Congress. We'll have more political power. And I think that progressives, as progressives, we have to start building our political power because that's the only way we're going to be able to go up against this establishment. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Strength in numbers. And, you know, people like AOC and the squad have done a lot in terms of using their platforms to bring things into the public debate. So, you know, mm. we had the Green New Deal being spoken about in the presidential debates. So thanks to the Sunrise Movement and to AOC, you know, kind of catapulting it into the news by joining the protests outside Pelosi's office. Um, and so that that can do a lot, but we do need more people in. We need, like you said, greater strength in numbers so that we can really use our votes um, for power as well. Hmm. What, uh, what kind of police reforms and criminal justice reforms would you like to see come out of this and come out of these protests? I would like to see uh, a lot less funding go to the police. So drastically decreasing the funding, demilitarizing mm -hmm. the police, abolishing mm -hmm. private prisons, both private prisons for American citizens and also for immigrants. Uh, in Tacoma, we have one of the largest private immigration centers in the country. And there are, we've been protesting it for years and years. And in a movement called La Resistencia that's led by people who are detained inside the center. And uh, there are terrible conditions there. And there are actually people there who have been diagnosed, who have been found pos tested positive with coronavirus. So we, mm. having private prisons really incentivizes uh, the police to fill the prisons because um, that's what the companies who own the prisons want. If you, um, if you look at human beings as capital stock, like somebody from the Trump administration yeah. did, uh, what's the way that you as a business owner make the most money? Well, you have the most capital stock in there that you're then paid to have in there. And it creates a perverse incentive for the police to arrest, arrest as many people as possible. And then we need to community control boards um, because, you know, there was a great podcast over the intercept about the history of the police. You know, a lot of people know that some of the origins of the police are in slave patrols. 
Um, mm. And that accounts for a lot of the racism in, in police, the police forces and police actions. Uh, they were also, you know, for probably f over 50 years now, been really closely tied with the military and using military equipment, military tactics. You know, people would um, serve overseas, um, fighting you know, in counterinsurgencies, fighting insurgents overseas, and then come back and use those same insurgency tactics as police officers here. So they're treating the people as if we were insurgents. And that's how a lot, you know, we really need to address that um, because it's not keeping people safe. I mean, we see these protests about police brutality and the police just respond by brutalizing people. Right. Or how about they're, they're firing tear gas at the American people? I remember a few months ago that, that there were uh, elected officials who were condemning uh, foreign countries and foreign adversaries for using tear gas against their people. Mm -hmm. uh, well, guess what? Now we are using tear gas against the people. Yeah. You know, I'd like to see tear gas be banned, you know, that we can't use tear gas against our people. And I think you, you brought up some great reforms. I also think we need to have independent investigations of these police forces because this is a systemic issue. You know, today would have been Breonna Taylor's 27th birthday, mm -hmm. but 84 days ago, she was murdered by the people in her community that were supposed to protect and serve her. She was murdered by Louisville police while she was sleeping in her bed. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's outrageous that we're at this point. Um, but something has to be done. And, uh, you know, I just, if we step, if we step back a little bit, I, I think there's a connection between uh, what we're seeing with these black life, black life matters protests and the pandemic. Uh, and it's the absolute failure of our government, like we kind of alluded to earlier, to represent the people because they've sold out to corporations and billionaires. We have a government that is giving police forces $100 billion a year to murder unarmed black people. And we have corporations, and they just gave corporations a $500 billion bailout while tossing crumbs at the people during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, injustice and inequality of this magnitude that's what leads to revolution. Yet our politicians are ignoring all this and refusing to fight for the fundamental change we need. Rebecca, do you see a reckoning coming soon? Because it feels like the status quo is failing the people and the people aren't going to tolerate it much longer. Yeah, you know, they act, you know, I don't know what they thought was going to happen. You know, when you continue to have the police murder uh, Black Americans on live video, and that's, they don't care. That's how emboldened they feel. And then you right. have people locked up at home for two months or more, depending on where you are in the country. For me, it's been almost three months, worrying about how they're gonna pay their rent or mortgage, worrying if they're gonna die because they get coronavirus and they can't afford to get treatment or get tested, and worry they're gonna lose their homes, losing their jobs, 40 million unemployed. I mean, the employment rate is now the highest since the Great Depression. It's probably higher among youth. I, what did they think was gonna happen? And I do think there is a reckoning coming because people are just completely sick of it, you know, to watch corporations get bailed out. And something we have to keep in mind as well is that there's a huge alliance between corporations and billionaire philanthropists and the police. For example, there's been a, a plane flying over Baltimore, a, a military grade plane flying over Baltimore for weeks continually because it's capturing a continuous image of Baltimore so that that can be used if they're retroactively, if there's a protest somewhere or something, they can go to that time and find where did this person park? Where did they walk and go and use the ATM and everything? And um, the, the company doing that 
it's funded by liberal billionaire philanthropists who consider themselves good liberals. <laughs> they're funding this technology. And then we look at Palantir, you know, they're helping uh, the government, the military, the Pentagon, and they're also helping police departments. And so, yeah, there's, there's a huge reckoning coming, coming in my opinion. Yeah. You know, and, and again, as we kind of talked about earlier, all the democratic leaders right now, Joe Biden's campaign, they want to make everything about how bad Trump is, you know, but it's like it, anyone with two eyes and a functioning brain knows that Donald Trump is bad, right? Like, I don't need my leaders to tell me that. I can see that. Uh, and sitting around and screaming about Trump over and over again isn't going to make anyone's life better, right? Like, this moment should be about moving America forward and fighting for progressive policies that will heal the massive levels of inequality and injustice in, in this nation. That's what leaders do. They lead. But that's not what Biden's doing. That's not what the majority of the Democratic Party is doing. Like I said, they want to make it all, all about Trump. Why do corporate Democrats continue to just point the finger at Trump and refuse to address the root causes and conditions that led to Trump? Because then I think it's because they then don't have to take any accountability for their own role. I mean, Bill Clinton has a huge part, a huge cause. Bill Clinton and Joe Biden in causing the... Uh, mass incarceration of black Americans. And basically, I mean, like, you know, the book, I think it was written by Michelle Alexander calling it the new Jim Crow. I mean, it's Democrats who did that. It's not just Republicans, they're totally accountable. And it, it, it absolves them from having to do anything, from having to confront their corporate donors, from, you know, yeah, just, just taking real action. Um, and so I think that Trump said, you know, the bad orange man, how terrible, like, yeah, he is terrible. Yes, he is. I'm very disturbed by his uh, photo, you know, his speech about crushing protests and then talking about how we need peaceful protest while protesters are being gassed so he can walk over to church and hold up a Bible. This is all extremely disturbing. The Democrats are just wringing their hands. And if they actually took action to stop it, not only would they have to... Uh, you know, shine a light on their own actions, they would have to stop their own actions and do something new, which they don't want to, you know, they've benefited from the current system. That's right. And, you know, Trump didn't invent these systemic problems, right? Like Trump didn't invent systemic racism. Trump, Trump didn't create predatory capitalism. You know, Trump didn't create our corrupt political system. And he certainly didn't break our healthcare system. You know, my point is that America's failing because of these systemic problems mm -hmm. and they they existed before Trump and they'll be here after we vote Trump out. So for me, it's like we need to replace and and fix our oppressive systems. Right. And replace them with healing ones. But the problem is the ruling class profits off of our oppressive systems and they bought off our government and our politicians to keep the system exactly the way it is, right? Uh, so how do we break through this and get more progressives like you elected who actually want to fix our broken systems and not just blame the other side for all the problems? Well, one, first of all, um, having you know progressives like myself, like people, others who have been endorsed by brand new Congress and DSA, our evolution, who don't take corporate PAC or lobbyist money. So once we're in, we actually answer to the people instead of corporations. It's also, you know, a lot of us are discouraged, myself included, that Bernie Sanders didn't get the Democratic nomination. And um, people 
have felt despair and can we really change anything? But yes, we still, we can change things. It's remarkable that Bernie got as close as he did. I mean, somebody, a self-labeled democratic socialist who got there um, powered by millions upon millions of small dollar donations from nurses and active military and truck drivers and people all over the country of all races and, and uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. It's remarkable he got as close as he did. And what we can do now is not give up and not despair, but keep fighting and keep trying to get people in. And people argue about, should we, what's the right way to make change? Is it electoral politics or is it labor or protesting? I mean, the answer is all of the above. I've chosen electoral, that's what I'm focusing on right now. And I, but I also go to BLM protests and labor organizing is also as just as important. So is tenants rights organizing. And so whatever anybody listening to this feels called to do, um, that is what you can do right now in terms of electing progressives like myself. Uh, you know, you can donate, but also help us um, because anybody who saw uh, the tweet that AOC put up of her shoes a couple years ago where she said, respect the hustle. And she had um, pictures of her shoes with holes in the soles because people were saying, oh, she only won because, you know, uh, she's Latina and her district's majority Latino. And she's like, no, I won because I worked my butt off. And um, that's how you can help progressives is, you know, phone bank from home, wherever you are for a progressive who you want to support. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that about, you know, Bernie's campaign. Cause I was myself, you know, I was deflated, you know, I was finally feeling like things were going to change uh, for the better. And we were finally going to break through this corrupt political mm -hmm. system. But, you know, what I've learned is the, the political revolution goes on and it goes on and by, you know, by yes, by protesting and by, by disrupting and agitating but also through electoral politics. And I think the revolution goes on by electing democratic socialists like yourself that will carry on Bernie's vision. You know, it was always bigger, you know, he was one person, the whole not me, mm -hmm. us, you know, we're now in the us part and it's time for us to step up. And uh, so I'm grateful that people like you are stepping up. And, and that to me is, you know, if we can get every election cycle, if we can get rid, if we can elect, you know what, we got four progressives, in, in 2018, if we can get eight in, in 2020, that would be a huge victory. I think sometimes, you know, we want to change everything right now. The system is so corrupt. We're going to have to understand the long game of, of politics and continue to build our power and not get so discouraged after every, you know, after, after each defeat. Absolutely. Yeah. We, you know, the other side, Republicans are very good at playing the long game, strategizing. They, they, they uh, formulate their plans in decades and we're seeing the results of that you know with the judiciary for example and with all the success that organizations like alec have had in the state legislature level and we need to start thinking in terms of decades as well like yes we need to win right now and part of the reason that i'm running for congress right now is because of our 2030 climate deadline and because my opponent Derek kilmer has made it abundantly clear that he will not stay stop taking oil money he will not support the green new deal um, and he's just, he's not, he, he thinks that we can address this climate crisis by just rejoining the Paris Agreement and having some tax credits. And that is not sufficient. And so we need to take action and get wins in the short term. But also, like you said, look at the long term and um, know that in the end, if we keep on fighting and we get progress at every step of the way, uh, we can prevail. The Republicans did it with a long term strategy. We can too. Why have Democratic voters tolerated Democrats in Congress who, 
basically act just like Republicans and put corporations over people? I think one of the reasons is, well, there's a few. One that comes to mind is cable news and the way it talks about things. And uh, it really mm-hmm. doesn't show the true picture, yes. the full picture. If people are watching MSNBC and CNN, they get a very skewed view uh, of what these, yeah, mm-hmm. like these wealthy millionaire pundits think. I mean, these people, these talking heads on TV are not connected to the person who's working two low-wage jobs with zero benefits. Like, they they just are not. Right. And then the second thing is that it's really our either or binary political system where it's like, yeah, okay, you might not like the Democrat in whatever rates we're talking about, uh, presidential, congressional, state legislature, whatever it is, you might not like them. You might not agree with them on everything, but aren't they better than the Republican? And the answer is most of the time, yes, they are better than the Republican, but we need to get away from this either or system. We need to have political reforms like ranked choice voting, where you can vote for who you actually want and not have to play the lesser of two evils game. Right. And we can't, you know, you kind of alluded to this earlier. We can't keep electing the same politicians to Congress year after year. And in many cases, like Speaker Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, decade after Mm -hmm. decade. Right. Like they're part of this corrupt system because they've been there for so long. Like so I think, yes, we need to have term limits. But but as voters, I mean, when are the Democrats going to stop pointing the finger? We can't blame everything on Republicans if we're sitting here and electing the same people for 30 years. I mean, it gets to a point where, like, that's not even democracy. I, I feel like sometimes Pelosi, she acts like a monarch that, like, you know, now she's being primaried for the first time in 30 years and she's offended. <laughs> and if I post that I support Shahid, you know, Shahid for change, her, her primary challenger, people get like, they start screaming at me and they're so offended, like, wait, how could you support someone who's running against Pelosi? And I'm like, how could you not support democracy? Like, this is democracy. These people don't just get owed their seat every year. You know what I mean? Like, we've gotten in this weird place. Like, in my head, I'm like, if we want to beat the Republican Party and Donald Trump, we need more democracy, not less democracy. We need to be empowering voters and empowering disenfranchised voters, like you said, who, who aren't you know, these MSNBC talking pundits, I never turn on MSNBC and relate with any of the pundits because they're not talking about bread and butter everyday issues that working people are struggling with. You know, they're talking about the pomp and circumstance and Trump and, you know, all the kind of frivolous stuff. Whereas like the American people are struggling and they need representatives who will go in there and fight for them. And I just think we're so far removed in our politics from what politics is supposed to be about, which is representing the people, not corporations, not billionaires. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. I mean, it's not, politicians are not monarchs. You know, it's not, being in office is not your birthright. Voting is your birthright because this is a democracy and it's Mm. supposed to be run by the people and not for corporations. And so it's just absolutely absurd that people are so offended to have somebody run against a Democrat like this is a democracy. <laughs> Why don't right. we have choices? Nancy Pelosi has choices of expensive ice cream. Why can't we have choices of politicians that we have in? She's just, you know, let them eat cake, let them eat ice cream. People, oh wow, Nancy Pelosi, how how relatable, how funny. You know, she has a she has a mask that's pink and matches her clothes. She has all this ice cream in her expensive fridge and she she likes chocolate. You know, <laughs> what why shouldn't we have more 
choices for politicians. It's just completely absurd. So yeah, I agree with what you said there. Hmm. Uh, I want to kind of uh, shift the conversation uh, and address kind of um, systemic racism, but how systemic racism and, and predatory capitalism feed off each other. Uh, you know, what a lot of people don't realize because they don't really teach it in the history books is that Martin Luther King Jr. was an anti-capitalist, mm -hmm. right? Like when I learned about MLK in school, I learned that he was, you know, fighting for civil rights, but I didn't know that he was also fighting for economic rights and economic justice. And one of my favorite uh, Martin Luther King Jr. quotes is uh, when he said, something is wrong with the economic system of our nation. Something is wrong with capitalism. America must move toward a democratic mm -hmm. socialism. You know, MLK understood that we won't win the fight for racial justice without also winning the fight for economic justice. And I just pulled some numbers because I was in, I just, you know, we talk about economic inequality a lot as progressives, but economic inequality affects black and brown people even more so. So sometimes I think, you know, and so I, I pulled just it's, uh, the median wealth of a, of a black household in America, not income, not annual income, but the actual median mm -hmm. wealth. And it's $17,000. The median wealth of a white household is $170,000. And so when we look at the black white wealth gap, it's due to one thing. It's due to systemic racism that's been in America generation after generation after generation. Uh, so when we talk about economic inequality, it hits the black community harder than any other community. For years, the Democratic establishment has done little but provide lip service to black voters. As a progressive, Rebecca, what are your thoughts on specific policies to address the black-white wealth gap and where do you stand on reparations? Well, I believe that we need to implement reparations because it's a debt that's owed. And as part of it, we should have a national truth and reconciliation process like they have in other countries that had racial strife and strife between groups. We, we cannot keep on going blithely forward, ignoring how this country was founded, which was on the mass murder of Native Americans and the enslavement of African Americans. And this country, why did we go from being an isolated colony with a very pretty low pop, you know, number of people, low population, to being a world power so quickly? And how did we get so rich and so powerful? Well, a giant part of it, if not the number one reason, is that we had free labor. And so we had a capitalist system of you know the plantations and cotton and everything that we exported that was being grown and produced by human beings that we enslaved. And so the capitalism and racism are deeply intertwined in our country and have been since the very, very beginning. And we see it even in more recent history. So with redlining, which was rampant in Tacoma where I lived. Right. And anybody listening who's not familiar, redlining is basically like a red line was drawn on a map and you know, people of color, black people especially, were not allowed to live in certain neighborhoods. So, and then we look at how capitalism, racism, and the police force are intertwined and mutually enforce each other. If a black family tried to go into a white neighborhood and say, we'd like to look at this house, and they were not allowed to, who do you think would be called? The police. 
or if they were a black mm. family was traveling and they went into a sundown town where African Americans were not allowed to be in that town after sundown, it would be the police that were called to remove them or to imprison them. And so it's been deeply connected, you know, these the police system, criminal justice system that enforces capitalism and racism and makes it so that economic inequality is much worse for people of color and for black people and Native Americans in particular. And so what I would look at is things like, um, I've signed on to a homes guarantee and it has a racial justice, um, very like focused parts of that program to address racial injustice mm -hmm. in housing. And so one of those, for example, is uh, making reparations for generations of racist housing policy like redlining. And that has an impact on the wealth gap that you mentioned, because if um, people of color are, can only buy homes in poorer neighborhoods, they can only buy homes that have lower property values. A lot of people's wealth is tied up in the property they own. So there needs to be reparations made for racist housing policy. We also, the Homes Guarantee calls for the federal government investing $10 billion in housing and be, to build or reconstruct 12 million new units because that's how much we're short and have part of that be stipulated that it has to be through community land trusts and a community land trust, which um, people are working on already in Tacoma in my neighborhood uh, or in a neighborhood near mine called the Hilltop, which is majority, one of the few majority minority neighborhoods in the state or probably the Pacific Northwest. And they're using community land trust, which means the community buys the land or the home and they decide what to do with it. They rent it out or they can sell the home on it. But when they sell it, it's in the contract to the person who buys the home that when that homeowner resells it, it has to be at a certain rate and not have a certain rate so that the next person can buy it affordably. Um, so that if in the intervening years, all the properties around it, you know, went up by 20 times in price, you know, at least that property will still be uh, affordable. And if you have community land trusts on a mass scale and they're owned by the community, controlled by the community, that's something that could be done to combat gentrification and allow people of color to stay in their neighborhoods and buy buy homes and stay there and keep their neighborhoods um, in in the community. Yeah, that's a, that's a really <clears throat> good comprehensive policy because it kind of tackles the root of the issue. And one of the ways Americans build their wealth is through their homes and passing their, you know, homes, their homes onto their families generation after generation. Well, because like you said of redlining, that wasn't able to be done in the black community. Uh, you know, someone tweeted me this week and I, I, I read tweets on the podcast sometimes, but this one really stuck out to me. He's one of my black followers. He said, I'll tell you what white people, if you are against looting, then how about you start by returning all of the land yeah. that you looted from yep. Black people and Native Americans? And, you know, you just, you said this earlier, and I, I couldn't agree with you more, you know. And this is why I 100% support reparations for Black people and Native American people, because our nation has yet to make amends for our, for our original sin. And I think until we do that, this injustice that we see today is from the original injustice and from our original sin. So it will persist until we make amends for it. And, uh, you know, I think is, you know, as progressives, look, I mean, Medicare for all and a Green New Deal and universal childcare and universal public college and uh, student debt cancellation, 
all of those policies actually benefit minority communities even more than white communities. So they're fantastic policies. But I also think because, again, of, you know, like you said, that this is a debt, this is a debt we've never repaid, that I think at the top of before mm-hmm. that is reparations. And I think as progressives, if we can lead with reparations and also the other comprehensive policies, that will really not just, you know, reduce economic inequality. It will really help things like the black-white wealth gap where the where the inequality in our society is the most. Yeah, pronounced. definitely. And I, I agree with that. You know, something that as democratic socialists, we believe in are use universal programs. And those are important. But we also have to have uh, programs like reparations, like um, things address, you know, programs to address right. redlining, because if you have, you know, our existing system, and I don't know, people may, a lot of people may have seen the meme online where there's people standing on, on stairs, and, you know, they are trying to look over a fence, and where are they? So um, in terms of describing, like, equity, if everybody starts, you know, somebody's on the ground level, somebody's on the first floor, somebody's on the third floor, and you just move them all one floor right. up with your universal program, there's still inequality. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why, like, again, I mean, progressive programs help communities of color the most. But I just think because of the because of what's happened and because of our history, adding in reparations to the progressive agenda and putting it near the top. I just think that separates the left, especially because the, the establishment, you know, corporate Democrats have done nothing for the black community except provide lip service. I mean, you know, since the civil rights movement, there's been very small amounts of just little tiny incremental change. And when there's this much inequality, that's not enough. You know, we're at a moment where we need fundamental change. Um, And, uh, you know, I think the problem in America is our nation is glorifies oppressive systems like capitalism and demonizes just systems like democratic socialism. And this glorification of capitalism and demonization of socialism has created an unbalanced society that is ruled by corporations and billionaires. And so, you know, when I hear all these people talk about, because I'm a democratic socialist as well, like you are, and when I hear people say like, oh, I don't want bigger government, I always push back and I say, no, this isn't about bigger government or smaller government. It's about who does our government work for? And right now our government works for the corporations, the 1%, and the plutocrats. And we need a government that works for small businesses, that works for the people, and that works for the 99%. That to me is democratic socialism. It's, yeah, it's absolutely. And we already have big government, but it's a corporatist big government. You know, what do they think funds, you Thank know, you. these police forces? Billions and billions of dollars. How is that not big government? Right. Or these giant corporate bailouts and the Wall Street bailouts. Essentially, we have these giant corporations who can take as much risk as they want because as soon as they fail, they cry out for socialism to save them. I mean, if anything, that just shows you like how broken capitalism in America is, is that when these giant corporations fail, they cry out to the government to to save them. Yet the people have to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and save money for a rainy day. Like we can't count on a government. That yeah, exactly. And all this stuff, big government, small government. I mean, it's just, it's ludicrous. Like we have a big government. The problem is who it's for. Right, right. Um, okay, well, we're nearing the end. And I ask every candidate, the final question I always ask is, uh, what have you learned about yourself 
And what have you learned about America in running for office? About myself, I've learned that there are a lot, I can do a lot more than, than I thought I could. Um, it demands a lot of you and any process does, you know, anybody listening to this, if you want to uh, start a business or start a new career or go to school or, or pick like a major that you think is really hard and you're kind of scared about it or any decision you have in your life. Like I thought about it beforehand. I was like, I don't know if I can um, do what I need to do. If I have the skills, if I'll be able to, but every step of the way, you know, it forces you to grow. And if you really believe in what you're doing, uh, you find, at least I've found that I can find a way to do it. And uh, I don't, I'm a first time candidate, but lots of people have shown up along the way to help me. Um, and so I found that I could grow each step of the way to get the skills I needed. Um, and it's like that with any big challenge in life when you really believe in what you're doing, I think. And then what I've learned about our country, honestly, like I've just gotten, running for office has kind of radicalized me in a way. I was already a democratic socialist. I had already, you know, I volunteered as a human rights observer for the Zapatistas like 13 years ago. But um, just, you know, starting to run for office and seeing kind of the inside of how it works and uh, how pe people just casually toss around mm -hmm. these numbers like, yeah, you got to raise 500K. Yeah, you got to do this. Oh, what about bundlers, lobbyists, like all this stuff, you just see it from the inside. And it's just so um, diseased <laughs> the way our political system works and uh, running without taking corporate PAC or yeah. lobbyist money and trying to do it the right way has just made me even more committed to progressive politics. And um, it's just, I guess what I've learned about our country is how deep the rot goes <laughs> even, even more than I knew before. Yep. Uh, and uh, how can our listeners uh, chip in 20 bucks to uh, help your campaign? Because, again, you don't take corporate money and we need the only way we're going to fix this systemic rot is if we have people like you in there who actually want to go in there and, and solve problems and not scapegoat. So how can where? Yeah, do thank you. Uh, people can go bucks? to Rebecca for WA.com slash donate and give what you can afford to. Every dollar helps. You know, on one uh, at one point it was costing a dollar would fund 16 dials. And most of our money right now is going to phone banking because uh, that's our field program during the pandemic. And so when you give money, you're directly funding our contact with voters. And you can also check me out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Rebecca for WA. Um, just follow there. And uh, I follow Ryan as well. Really enjoy watching uh, your tweets because you're always just putting things in a really pithy way and uh, calling out the injustices. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And uh, it's just, this was a joy. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. And uh, yeah, thank if you, you Ryan. need anything, you know where to find me. All right. Thanks, Rebecca. Before we close the show, I'd like to thank our monthly Patreon subscribers who help make the, keep the show going. So I want to thank Alex, Sandra, Orso, Alan Wood, Ari Slater, Colin Bowden, Efron Borakis, Eileen O'Farrell, Elizabeth Kim, Insurgent, John Floyd IV, Mary Fancher, Matthew Hahn, Molly Secors, Patty Clary, Ruben Sanchez Jr., Russell Whitworth, 
Shauna Pearson, and Walter Hackett. Again, thank you guys so much for supporting the podcast and supporting independent media. If you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash proud socialist, or you can support the show right here on Anchor by going to anchor.fm slash proud socialist. And there's a little link where you can support the podcast. Again, thank you so much for the support and catch you next week with an all new episode of Amped Up with Ryan Knight. Thank you.